0: Good morning church family. Today we will share together the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 6 and 7 through verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible there in the pew in front of you and you can turn to page 48 to follow along. This is Exodus chapter 6 through 7, 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them." To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, these are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Mirari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jacobed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years, the sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Kizri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his, his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Ebihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Ashir, Elkanah, and Abiaseth. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord tell pharaoh king of egypt all that i say to you but moses said to the lord behold i am of uncircumcised lips how will pharaoh listen to me and the lord said to moses see i have made you like god to pharaoh and your brother aaron shall be your prophet you shall speak all that i command you The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent." Then Pharaoh summons the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning.
1: Thank you, Barb, for reading that and all of those names. Praise God for every one of them. We are in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Exodus, the first section of Exodus, the first 15 chapters from slavery to glory. Exodus is the historical account of how God faithfully rescued His people out of bondage and then brings them into his glorious presence. It's a, it's a rescue from, it's a drawing out, and it's a drawing to, to himself, to his glory. Which means that though this happened a long time ago, it's still re- incredibly relevant to our lives. Why? Because we all need to be rescued. We all need the Lord to break the bonds in our lives, the bonds of sin and the bond of death, and to bring us into his glorious presence. That's why we keep saying over and over that the story of Exodus is not just the story of Israel's redemption, it is our story of redemption as well. Today, trust and obey our promise-keeping God. If you've been tracking with us, or if you haven't, that's okay, uh, you might know that God has already appeared to Moses in, in a burning bush, a theophany, his presence was there and he reveals himself as the I Am Yahweh. And then he commissions Moses, go back to his Egypt, go back to your people, and lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses wasn't quite convinced that he's the right man for the job, and he gives all kinds of excuses, but God graciously promises to give Moses everything he needs to do the task before him. And so Moses goes to Egypt with this incredible message of freedom and hope for the enslaved Israelites, and the people rejoice, and they realize God has heard our cries of afflictions. He is seen our pain and he's come down to do something and Moses goes into the pharaoh and it, and it feels like this great pinnacle let my people go and instead of letting the israelites go pharaoh responds with no <laughs> And he says, oh, you must have a lot of time on your hands if you're complaining about going out to worship. And so he, he actually adds cruelty to the people of Israel. He increases their suffering. And by the end of Exodus 5, it seems like God's plan to rescue Israel through Moses has failed. Pharaoh has won. It's gone from bad to worse, and the people are crushed and upset. Moses is crushed and upset, and and Exodus 5 ends with Moses crying out to God, asking really hard questions. God, why did you do this? Why didn't you save us like you said? You haven't delivered your people. At the end of chapter 5, he says, you haven't delivered your people at all. Moses is at a crossroads here. He's either going to walk away from God's call, maybe go back and hide in the desert again. Can he really trust God's promise and obey his word? What do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you hoped? What do you do when an unexpected trial enters your life? maybe like moses you feel like look i've been doing exactly what god has called me to do i believe i'm doing exactly what god has called me to do and it's not made life better it's actually made life harder you've been waiting for a godly man but one never comes you raise your kids in the church try to teach and invest in them spiritual matters and then they grow up and they want to have nothing to do with the lord You prepare for marriage, and and you've been dreaming about marriage, and then you find marriage isn't all that you dreamed it would be. You do everything you're supposed to financially to to prepare for retirement, and then you retire, and then you get a diagnosis, and everything changes. Or your child gets a diagnosis. It doesn't matter how far along you are in the Christian journey, you will find yourself in a place along the way where what you know about God and what you experience in life doesn't seem to match up. There seems to be a discrepancy. And my question this morning is: what do you do? Will you keep trusting God's promises? Will you keep obeying His word? Or will you take a shortcut out? Will you say, you know what, I I tried it God's way, now I'm going to try it my way. This is where Moses finds himself. And so in response to all of these questions that Moses asked at the end of chapter 5, look what God says. Look at how he speaks and reminds Moses that he can be trusted and he must be obeyed. Lesson number one. Excuse me. Remember that the Lord always keeps his promises. Verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Does that sound like an answer to why did you ever send me? Does that sound like the answer to why did you do all this evil, Lord? No. God responds to none of Moses' questions. He doesn't explain why he allows things to go from bad to worse for his people. He doesn't defend his choice of Moses being the right man for the job. Why? Listen, here's why. Because God never has to explain himself to anyone. That may not be the answer you want to hear, but God's response to Moses is basically, everything is working out exactly according to my plan, even the hard things. And then God does something somewhat strange. He repeats himself. He repeats himself. He's already told Moses that he's going to compel Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Why does he now repeat, here's what I'm going to do, Moses? Because new information is not what Moses needed in this time of crisis. Look, when you and I are hurting, When we're going through some kind of trial, we should go to God with our questions. That's what Pastor Ack was saying last week. Go to God with your lament. Go to God with biblical complaint. Cry out to Him. That's how you draw near to Him. But don't expect Him to answer all of your questions. What you can expect from Him is to remind you of what He has already promised. That's what he does for Moses. In verses two through eight, God fleshes out. He says, this is what I I mean when I say I am the Lord, Moses. When I say I am, remember when he says Lord in all capital letters, that's the divine name. That's Yahweh, Jehovah. This is what I mean when I say I am the Lord. And now he reminds himself, he reminds Moses of what his name signifies. Verses two through five, notice how God connects his name, the Lord, with his covenant promises. Verse 4, I have established my covenant. Verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. I am the Lord. When God says, I remembered my covenant, He doesn't mean He ever forgot it, right? It's not like He misplaced it and He's like, oh, I just remembered. No, whenever the Bible talks about God remembering His covenant, it always signifies Him taking action to fulfill it god's remembering is god's acting when god remembers it means he's going to do something now verse 3 raises an interesting question look at with verse 3 he says i appear to abraham to isaac and to jacob as god almighty or as else should i but by my name the lord yahweh i did not make myself known to them that seems strange Because it suggests that God never revealed his special name to the patriarchs. And yet if you read Genesis, you find the name the Lord or Yahweh is is recorded over a hundred times. What does God mean here? What does he mean he didn't reveal himself as Yahweh before? Here's what he means. It means he didn't fully reveal the meaning, the significance of his divine name to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see the patriarchs were given promises of God's mighty act of salvation, but they had not yet witnessed it. This is the difference between Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis, uh, God shows Abraham that he is the promise maker. Makes all kinds of promises. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to multiply your people. He is the great promise maker in Genesis. But to Moses, he experiences God as the great promise keeper. In the deliverance out of Egypt, God demonstrates his saving power and he connects it to a special name, revealing he is the Lord who saves and redeems. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never experienced that. But the Exodus generation, they get to experience that God remembered his covenant, and that's called grace. God says, I have heard the groanings of my people, I have remembered my covenant, and now my covenant rooted in love is to move in response, is to move and act. Christian, when trouble comes, a, you must remember, we must remember that God always keeps His promises. That is what makes him God. If he does not keep a promise, he is not God. It is at the heart of what his divine name means, Yahweh. It means I keep my promises. That's why 1,500 years later, after this moment, God would send his son Jesus to keep his promise, to fulfill his covenant, to break us free from an even greater bondage to sin and death. That's why God remembered his covenant on Christmas morning when he brought Jesus into the world. He remembered his covenant when Jesus was dying on the cross to bear our guilt and punishment for sin. And God remembered his covenant on Easter Sunday morning as, when God raised Jesus from the dead. And as the author of Hebrews puts it, when God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God ready to intercede and help when trouble comes. He promises forgiveness and he gives it. He promises grace for our sin and he gives it. He promises comfort and peace through his spirit living inside of us and he gives it. And he promises to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Remember, remember that God always keeps his promises. You see, the more you remember The more you will have hope and confidence that you need to keep walking by faith let me ask you this morning what promise of god do you need to remember and cling to today to help you continue following jesus what promise do you need to latch on to do you need to cling to do you need to remember and and believe in order for you to continue to follow jesus as your savior and lord today remember that the Lord always keeps his promises. Lesson number two, accept that the Lord is in control, not you. When God says, I am the Lord, he doesn't just mean he always keeps his promises. He He also means, I am the one who is in complete control. Verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you off from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is preparing Moses for a showdown. And it's not a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. Okay? Those aren't the two great actors in this story. It's a showdown between God and Pharaoh. And the ultimate proof that God is the true God, that God is in control, that God wins, the ultimate proof of that is the miraculous exodus of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. God will make it abundantly clear that the most powerful king in the world is no match for the most powerful king in the universe. You see, whatever God, when he says, I'm going to stretch out my hand, whatever God stretches out his hand to do, that is what will happen. Look at verse 1 again. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send you out, and with a strong hand he will drive you out. Wait, who's doing what here? Is Pharaoh doing it or is God doing it? Listen, God is decisively acting in hardening Pharaoh's heart. We're going to talk about this more in a couple weeks. Who who hardened their heart? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And did God harden his, his heart? What's happening here? God is decisively doing this. You see, what God does to Pharaoh is the cause for what Pharaoh will do to the Israelites. What does that mean? It means God is sovereign. Being sovereign simply means he is in control over all things. He reigns supreme. God is not simply a participant in this drama that is unfolding between Pharaoh, Moses, and the Israelites. No, he is orchestrating every detail in this drama to bring about his good plan. Is that how you view God? Will you let Scripture shape your view of God more than any other influence in your life? Or will you say, you know what? I don't like a God who's in control of everything. I don't want a God who determines that. I want to be, I, I'm going I'm to shape my view because I think that fits better. Or I like what this author says. Or I like what, like what this thinker says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that. Or will you say, no, God's word shapes my view of God. I don't get to shape my view of God. We have to wrestle with this. We have to come to grips with the fact that God can't be put into a mold that we make for him. He himself is the mold. He is the standard of what is good and just and right. Listen, please don't lose heart, Christian. Why is this significant? Why does God remind Moses that he is in control? Because when trouble comes your way, God is still in control. He is still working all things out for your good and for his glory. God rules over the affairs of of humanity. And you and I can fight against that truth and it will leave us frustrated and bitter. I promise you. Or you can embrace this truth, rest in this truth, accepting that God doesn't owe you an explanation for anything he does, and yet what he promises, when he makes promises, his promises is always, is always rooted in his power to redeem his people and to punish evil. Do you and I tremble at the enormity of his power? that everything that is going to happen is ordained by God, that is driven by God for the good of his people and not for their harm. He's saying, this is what it means to know me as the Lord, as Yahweh. That no matter what you're going through today, God is in control. No matter what Pharaoh you might be, you might have, who is working to make your life miserable, you say, my boss is like Pharaoh. My spouse is like Pharaoh. My kids feel like Pharaoh. My in-laws, your neighbor, whoever it is. I can't begin to understand all that God is doing in your trouble or even in mine. But one thing I do know, how I feel in a trial How I feel in the midst of of a trouble, of a troubling situation, how I feel in the midst of a trial is a lousy decipher of whether God's plan is working. Moses shared God's promise of deliverance with the people, verse 9. And what do they say? It says they didn't listen to him because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Look, part of the challenge of the Christian life is that when you get saved, when you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus as Savior, all of God's promises are now yours. The New Testament says all of God's promises are yes and amen. But here's the rub. There's an already and a not yet aspect to those promises. There's an already aspect and a not yet. The already aspect is you are already forgiven. You are already made new. You are already unconditionally loved. You are already adopted into his family. You already have all shame. that, From God's perspective, all shame is gone. No more guilt. You have God living inside of you. That is already true. Amen? (laughs) Okay. But there are promises that are not yet fulfilled. Like... The promise of unspeakable joy in his presence. The promise of no more sin. The promise of no more pain and suffering. The promise of no more death. Those promises are future. The problem comes when we think future promises are meant for us right now. God says, I'm going to deliver you, Israel. But life got much harder for them, not better. And that broke them. They forgot that they had to accept that the Lord is in control, not them. They had to wait for him to fulfill his promise. Look, church, the wonder of the Christian life is not that our happy ending is immediate. The wonder of the Christian life is that our happy ending is guaranteed. It is. That's a blood-bought promise. That's where we stake our hope in the waiting, that God is still in control that he has all the power to prove that in the good and the bad and the ugly, that his good plan will ultimately prevail. Lesson number three, rejoice that the Lord is your redeemer. When God says, I am the Lord, the third thing he means is, I am the one who redeems my people. That's verses six to eight. I will bring them out. I will deliver them. I will redeem you. This is a huge theme in the book of Exodus, and it's a huge theme in the Bible. We need to understand what does it mean for God to be our Redeemer. To redeem something means to to rescue, to protect, and to provide for someone at great personal loss. God plans to rescue, protect, and provide for His people as he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. But he also promises, promises them that he will be their God and they will be his people. It's always a rescue from something and a rescue to something. A rescue out of Egypt, a rescue into his presence. That's what God is promising. And that's just not the story of Exodus, it's the story of the entire Bible. From the beginning of of time, in the beginning of Genesis, all the way to now, God has been redeeming his people, rescuing, protecting, providing that we might enjoy his presence forever. Look at verse 7. He literally says, I will take you to be my people. That is literally adoption language. God will take the people of Israel and make them, adopt them as his family. That's why in chapter 4, he says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. I'm adopting them. They are mine now. They have become my family. New Testament language applies this even deeper, and then it points it to Jesus. Look what it says in Galatians 4, 4-7. We read this a few weeks ago. Do you see how he connects redeeming, rescuing out of slavery, into his family, into adoption? And, and what is God saying? He's saying in your discouragement and in your pain, remember that you have a Redeemer. Remember that Jesus came to rescue you and I out of the pit of sin and death. He came to rescue you out of the dirt, out of the muck and mire, out of the mess we had created ourselves. It's not even like, uh, like, like, like God did it to us and then he rescued us. We got into this mess and we're like, how we get? And God says, I'm going to have to come in there and it's all messy and it's dirty. And he says, oh, here I come. Gets in there, brings us out of us and makes us new. He makes us his sons and daughters. He redeems his people. And that means this. It means you can trust him to love you and lead you and care for you every step of the way. That doesn't mean he takes away all of our troubles. That's evident right here in this passage. But it does mean that he is still working in the midst of our troubles. Even in the midst of our sin and our, our, our struggles, he is still working to rescue, protect, and provide because he is our redeemer. Do you believe that this morning? Might this lead to some level of joy even in the, in the midst of pain? Paul says you can, have sor- you can be ever sorrowing yet ever rejoicing and you can only do that if you know that he is the Lord. I don't know, again, I don't know what you're going through. I know what I'm going through. I know life can be hard. I know marriage can be hard. I know parenting can be hard. I know work can be hard. I know being a church member can be hard. Maybe you feel like Moses in this passage. He keeps questioning whether he's the right man for the job. Right at the end of of this section before the genealogy, God, I'm not the right man. I don't have a good voice. I can't do this. After the genealogy, same thing. God, I'm not the right man. He keeps hitting this wall and it leaves him discouraged. Maybe your life hasn't worked out the way you hoped. Maybe your dreams have been just that, only dreams. Or maybe you feel like the Israelites today. Their spirit was broken by the brokenness of this world. And what does God say to them? He says, you will see what I will do. I am the Lord. But did you know that God says something even better to us today? He doesn't just say, you will see what I will do. He says, you have seen what I've already done. You see, that's better news. We have the benefit of seeing God be faithful to his promises. In the Exodus, we see God rescue his people out of slavery and into his glorious presence. But even more stunning than that, we have seen what God has done in redeeming us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are still doubting God's goodness, still questioning His plan, remember the cross and the empty tomb. On the cross, as Jesus is dying because of our sinful rebellion against God, does it look like God is in control? No, it looks like Satan is having a field day. It looked like evil was triumphing over good. Oh, but God was doing exactly what he had predestined to do. He was putting death to death in the death of Jesus. God was making him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could receive his very righteousness through faith in Jesus. On the the cross, God was keeping all of his promises even when all hope was lost. You see, God told his people in verse six here, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And we know in the Bible that that is God's pattern. There is no redeeming without judgment. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the arms of God were both outstretched and there was a mighty act of judgment right there. But God wasn't judging his enemies. He was actually judging his own son. On the cross, Jesus was redeeming God's people by dying for us at great personal cost to himself. You see, when life gets harder before it gets better, you need to remember the cross. I need to remember the cross. Remember that God brings victory out of tragedy, that he brings beauty out of ashes. See God in control even in the darkest of times. See God bearing the worst trouble, the ultimate judgment, in order to redeem you, to rescue and to protect and to provide for you, that is the very definition of love. And remember the empty tomb, that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised to new life so those who trust in Jesus can experience that same resurrection of life forever. He told Moses, I'm going to take you to your own land, the land I promised. And he, he tells us, I'm going to take you to be with me, Jesus says that where I am, there you may also be. Are you able to rejoice in the Lord, your Redeemer, today? Or do you need to, today to repent and trust in Jesus for the very first time? Finally, lesson four. Humbly, and I would add another word, Humbly and courageously obey the word of the Lord. Humbly and courageously obey the word of the Lord. After Moses shares God's promise of redemption with the Israelites, they reject his message. And Moses again complains to the Lord, if my own people won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? But God makes it clear in verse 11, go tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel get out of his land. And then there's this long genealogy which seems to come out of nowhere. And then the story picks right up after uh, with Moses being discouraged again about his inability to speak. Real quick, the genealogy. Here's why that's there. It is there to authenticate Moses and Aaron as the leaders of Israel. It is there to authenticate that Moses and Aaron are true Israelites. That they are the ones God chose to lead. That is why it says, these in verse 26, these are the Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said. It was they who spoke. It was this Moses and this Aaron they're Moses, they're God's men. They're God's chosen men. The people have begun to doubt these guys. They keep saying, "Yahweh has spoken to us." And maybe they're thinking, "Well, this guy has spent the last 40 years in the desert. What gives him the right to lead us?" And this brief genealogy makes clear, yes, there's nothing special about Moses and Aaron. They're jacked up just like you and I. But God calls them. He called them. And it doesn't even make sense. They're not even the sons of the firstborn. They're not sons of Levi. They're sons of, Reu- They're sons of Levi, not sons of Reuben. He's not even the firstborn. Moses isn't. And yet God will use him. All the, all the while you have Moses given excuse after excuse, but the Lord has none of it. Chapter 1, verse 7, you will be like God to Pharaoh. Moses, when you stand before Pharaoh, you will literally represent me and speak for me. You are my ambassador in whom I invest all my authority. That's why it's a showdown between God and Pharaoh. Not Moses. No, God. Moses stands in the place of God, but it's, it's, a, it's a, who's God? God or Pharaoh? And in verse 2 of chapter 7, you will speak all that I command you. Do you hear what God is saying? Moses I'm not asking you to volunteer. I'm commanding you to go. God's commands are not invitations to dialogue. They're orders to obey. This is what it means to know him as the Lord. When you read God's word... And he makes it clear, this is how you ought to live. This is how I call you to live. Not for your punishment, but for you to live fully alive. When he calls us to live that way, you can share all your concerns with the Lord. You can say, well, if I do that, it might hurt me financially. It might hurt me relationally. I'm, not, I'm inadequate to do that. How can I be a loving spouse like that? How can I be a dedicated employee like that? How can I be a respectful child like that? I don't know. You can tell God all the reasons why you don't have time to make disciples why you don't have time to invest in other church members you can make all the excuses why you can't make it to church regularly even though he commands you to do it and you can do on and on and on and God's not going to go oh wow thank you for sharing that it must be really hard I might maybe I'll change it how about how about just come to church once or twice a month maybe that is that can you handle that he doesn't do it maybe some of you should make disciples you know what the Lord's going to say? He's going to say, remember who I am and now do what I say. <laughs> My commands are for your good, 1 John says. And here's the crazy thing about Moses. After this long emotional roller coaster that he's been on, I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. Find someone else. God, nope, you're the right man. You're the one I'm calling. I know you're not good enough. It's called grace. You got to figure this out. <laughs> okay, well, now what? After all his disobedience, what does he do? Chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded them. Do you see it? Moses and Aaron humbly and courageously obey. They do exactly what the Lord commanded them, even when it was hard, even when it was risky, even when they still had questions. And so here's where I'm ending. How do you react when God tells you what to do? Are you resisting his word in some way today? Is there something you need to do today to humbly and courageously obey his word without delay and without grumbling? Or will you continue to walk in disobedience, disregarding his word, disregarding the heart of God, disregarding the promises of God, disregarding the control of God, and disregarding the redemption of God, and say, I know better, God. You say, well, I'm not doing that. We know we're doing that. Are you willing to ask the hard questions and say to your friend or your small group or whoever, is there something in my life? that I need to obey right now, or maybe just, you already know it. Obedience is always costly. But when you remember that the Lord's in control, when you remember that he always keeps his promises, when you remember that he has redeemed you lovingly and so powerfully, that this is what it means to know the Lord, Yahweh. He gives you what you need. He gives you what you need to walk in obedience. Church, will we together, trust and obey our promise-keeping God. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you. We invite you to work in our hearts. We invite you to to right now remind us of who you are. Help us to remember promises that we need to cling to. to, to humbly accept that you are in control. To rejoice in the salvation the redemption you've given us but god right now we, we know that it's one thing to to believe these things and to rejoice in them but it's another thing to live in them to walk in them to obey as a response of faith we know this is what you're calling us to lord i want to just cry out on behalf of my church family and admit that if we live the way you've called us to, Lord, it's gonna cost us. It's gonna cost us emotionally. We're gonna feel the pain and the effects of walking with you, rejecting the things around us that are so alluring. It might cost us at work. Father, I pray that you'd meet us where we are right now, individually and as a church that we might humbly and, and courageously walk by faith and not by sight because, because there are promises still yet to be fulfilled that will be fulfilled. Lord, we know there's a day coming when you will make all things new. You will wipe every tear away. Trials and trouble will be no more. Everything sad will become untrue. God, made that future day give us hope and strength for this day. For your glory, Lord, and for the beauty and the good of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.